Welcome to the Global Policy Institute podcast uh, here at Loyola Marymount with the VPI. Uh, in this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Prachi Jain, uh, who is a professor of experimental behavioral economics here at LMU. Uh, thank you so much for blessing us with your present, and how's your day going? It's been going well so far. It's the end of the semester, so you guys know how it is. Yeah, really this year's finals. Um, well, I want to start with the first questions. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your professional journey here? How did you get to LMU? What was your role from this university and like where you came from? Yeah, so I um, started off with my undergraduate degree at UC Berkeley. And when I first started, I actually fell in love with economics. And I say that quite literally um, because I was actually a bio major and I took an econ class and everything just clicked. Like I loved this way of seeing the world and it just made sense to me. And so very early on, I realized like, oh, I love this. And I started talking to both faculty and grad students. Um, and they kind of encouraged me to take more and more quantitative econ classes. And it was just so, and then I got to take, a, a, do opportunities that kind of confirmed that this is what I wanted to do. So I did like an internship at Merrill Lynch that I hated. It showed me business was not my thing. Um, and then I did an internship at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C., and that was really great. Um, and so I just kept kind of going and going, and it was so clear by the end that this is what I wanted to do. Um, so then I went to, straight into University of Michigan for grad school, um, where I did my Ph.D. in economics. And then after that, I actually took the job at LMU but negotiated a postdoc. So I spent a year at Princeton working in behavioral economics, and it allowed me to go to Kenya um, to do, continue to do research. Um, so that was kind of my path to LMU. Well, that sounds like a long journey. <laughs> um, As graduate school often is, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, but it was fun. It sounds fun. Um, so speaking on that, like uh, on LMU and its curriculum, so you have an interesting setup class uh, for your global poverty class next semester. Like, would you like to elaborate and share something about that? Yeah, so I, you know, have already been teaching a traditional economic development class, which is really focused on why is it that low-income folks or low-income countries get mm -hmm. feel stuck, what keeps folks in poverty. And it's a very traditional class. And when I look at the LMU student body, what I see is a group of really passionate students that are excited to think more broadly. So think more interdisciplinary, think more about impacts, think about the real world. My understanding is our CSA is like the most active, you know, you guys are like <laughs> one of the most active student groups in terms of service. And so I decided to actually propose a new class called Global Poverty. And at the time I was just thinking about as, you know, instead of it being so traditional and focused towards our, our econ major, something that's more interdisciplinary, that's at the intersection of economics and some of the other fields. Um, so you only needed like intro econ to take it. Um, and the goal was to actually make the links, because so many of my students were already doing this, to about poverty in the United States and poverty more globally. So kind of this global local connection. And then it became clear, well, no, the students keep asking questions, right? I would teach this class and students would tell me that one of the things they got out of it was just thinking about what people's lives look like in other contexts and countries and how it differs from their own. And so it occurred to me that I have, so I, a lot of my research is in Kenya, where I work with this organization called the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. And they're fantastic. Often what I do is I go work with them, so they're kind of expert practitioners, where these are, it's a locally based, mostly Kenyan organization, where it's, you know, I work with them and they help me to implement my research studies. And they're amazing. Um, and they're practitioners, but they also don't often have economics experience. Mm -hmm. 
And so I thought, well, there's this beautiful kind of intersection where the LMU students have kind of the academic training and want to think about the world more broadly, but they just, it's hard to get that exposure. And then I have this group of practitioners who are experts in the context and what they do. They often don't have the economics training. And so I propose, and we have this engaged learning flag, of course, that I think is really um, very unique to LMU and I think what makes our courses here really spectacular, um, was thinking about this intersection. And so next semester for the first time, I got funding where this is gonna kind of be a very non-traditional course where the practitioners, so the Kenyans coming from the Buthara Center, are going to actively participate in the class at multiple levels. And it's gonna be kind of this collaboration. So the, it's like we have both groups of like the LMU students and the practitioners working together throughout the class. And so that way when I teach them the theoretical content, right, I can, first of all, it'll be informed by their own experiences because they work in the context that I'm talking about abstractly. But also, you know, I can kind of present, here's how academics think about it. But then the practitioner side is going to come in where the students are actually going to work with the, with the Kenyans mm -hmm. to put research projects together and actually implement them in Kenya. So they are experts oh, wow. in um, implementing research studies. So we've actually gotten funding so that we can survey about two to 300 people. Oh, and it's going to be structured yeah. so not everyone is doing 300, but basically they're going to work together, kind of the intersection of the Kenyans and the LMU students, to put together these research projects where we'll implement them remotely in Kenya via mobile phones, which has mm -hmm. become kind of a common method in the last few years, um, and then actually be able to debrief with that at the end of the semester. Well, that sounds really interesting, really hands-on experience for the students, and it sounds like they're going to learn as they, they're going to learn and practice what they do in the field, so it's like really good education that they're getting there. I think I'll learn some things too, yeah. I suspect. <laughs> so on that topic of intersectionality and different fields coming together, um, like how is doing research in another country different from the U.S., and to that aspect, you research in Kenya, like what have you learned from that, or like what's something interesting that has uh, a search from that? So I'm going to start a little bit with my background. So I'm Indian American, so my parents are immigrants from India. So I grew up here, but my experience is going back to India every other summer to mostly Delhi, where I would kind of see the world and poverty around me. Yeah. And I think, you know, I got into this work because so often when I heard people talk about things like social networks, there was often this narrative of like, how, oh, it's so bad, often when there's like, someone gets a lot of money in low-income communities, everyone asks them, hey, can you help me out? And it was almost portrayed as this negative thing. But when I looked at like immigrant communities in the US and what made my parents survive, there's a lot of really beautiful things that come out of this community. Like if someone's struggling, everyone helps each other out. Yeah. And so I got into this work because I just felt like it was interesting, it was important, and there were certain assumptions that we aren't thinking about that you just don't get if you don't have that background, hmm. right? Like in immigrant communities, community and social networks are just so important. And it might seem silly, but it matters in really concrete economic ways. So to me, going to places, so, so going to Kenya, of course, is different because it's not the same culture as Indian culture, yeah. not the same history. And that's why it was so beautiful to be able to work with the Busara Center because what I didn't have, they have a plenty. They have context, they have experience, they have people that I could talk to to try to understand. But the thing I love is people are people. There's this humanity everywhere. And so as long as I just don't come in with my preconceived assumptions and just am open to the experience, I've learned so much. And I think of anything, I think, wow, people are just great no matter where you go. Yeah. Um, and that's 
that's part of it. But of course, you have to navigate this terrain differently because when you go work with people in different countries, right, you have to be open to differences. You have to be non-judgmental. You have to be willing to talk to people. And so for me, my favorite part of implementing studies is actually when I pilot things. So that's a stage before, when you're still trying to figure out exactly how the study is going to work. Usually I try to go to Kenya at that stage and you just like talk to people. So you'll have them do the study and then you'll ask them like, what were you thinking about? Why did you do what you did? And their answers are so fun. And that is often where I think for me the fun part of research is because it challenges preconceived notions that I have. Or it makes me think differently about things in a way and that pushes me forward in how I think about my next project or even the project itself. Um, But I will say at the same time, I think there's actually more similarities and differences, especially when you're focusing on low-income folks. Because right, the history of my field is that we used to focus on low-income countries or Mm -hmm. quote-unquote developing countries, which I think is out of favor now for the global south. But those countries, we used to think, well, there's something fundamentally different going on, which is why people are stuck in poverty. And I think 10, 15 years ago, there was this like arrogance of American students where people would be like, Americans are great. Yeah. This is a problem for other people. And I don't see that in my classroom anymore. I think students, and I think you guys are probably some of them, that you understand that poverty is a problem in the U.S. and it's persistent. And my prior is that there's probably a lot more similarities than we think between poverty in the U.S. and poverty in places like Kenya. Right? The system is different, but there seems to be this similar story that folks are stuck in a way that's not just about the system. And I would like to study that further, and I think that's something maybe we haven't paid enough attention to. That sounds, uh, sounds like you're implementing cultural humility into your uh, research. And it's something that I learned in community psychology, that we have to come with this notion of like we're wanting to learn. It sounds like you're doing that, and it sounds like from that at perspective, a lot of good research and a lot of good projects are going to come out. That's like what you're doing right now. I hope so. <laughs> I did not know that term, though, so thank you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so well, with that uh, in mind, um, what, are, what importance does behavioral economics play in government administrations, and what are some other applications that they have? it has in our daily life? So I think you, you kind of have just heard that, right? We, I think that there's something similar about kind of why folks seem to get stuck. Mm-hmm. And it has not, it's not just about, like access to finance or access to government support. There's something more fundamental. And so that's where the behavioral economics comes in, is that, you know, even when we've given folks access to things like credit or savings or education, we still see that it's not not like the magic bullet that suddenly gets people out of poverty. And so I think there's been more and more attention paid to this idea that there's something fundamental about the psychology of poverty that really gets people stuck Right, and of course, it's one factor of many, but there's, we're seeing it across the world. We've spent so much money on poverty alleviation, and you know we've made progress for sure, but we yeah. haven't solved it, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's some really interesting behavioral insights about how we can design policies to help folks. Um, so it's kind of an old example, but one classic example is Richard Thaler has something called Save More Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, we know that folks just do not save enough for their mm-hmm. retirement. And what he realized is that simple policy things, things like opt-in versus opt-out, can make huge differences in whether people are saving without even realizing it. Another thing that I think is really powerful is this idea of present bias, that in the moment, I'm going to take the easy route and do what feels good, like eat too many chocolate chips, not go to the gym, gym, spend some money. But, you know, 
in my future, I don't plan on doing that, but I might keep doing this thing where I plan to do something and then I don't do it. Come on, it's finals. We all procrastinate yeah. at this time. <laughs> we don't, we understand procrastination. Um, and so he actually designed the policy in a way that took advantage of that. So the idea was that we know that if I say, hey, do you want to save more right now? You're going to say no, because you're like, no, I'd rather buy myself that nice dinner. Yeah. But if you say, hey, do you want, when your next pay raise kicks in, do you want to actually use most of that money towards your retirement account? You'll say yes, right? Because you're planning ahead and you're like, yeah. oh, I'll behave. And if I can get you to sign a piece of paper that says, hey, do you actually want to use, like increase your savings percentage right at the time that your next paycheck goes up? You'll say yes, and that'll make you better off because then you start to save. It doesn't feel that bad. And then in the long run, you're going to be much better. Like you're going to be happier and better off, but it's taking advantage of these behavioral biases. Um, and so there's other examples like this, but I think it's thinking about like these simple things where people still have free will, but we take advantage of like, kind of defaults and these timings of our behavioral biases and when they kick in to think about how can we design policies that make folks better off when they when they're gonna make the same mistakes again we're all gonna make these mistakes it's just how do we prevent ourselves from doing it so we're better off in the long run so it's it i'm hearing a lot of like psychological terms that apply to behavioral economics so behavioral economics is psychology actually right so behavioral economics is really so I can't tell if you're a psychology major. I am a psychologist. Okay, so you can get mad at me. <laughs> we basically take the best parts of psychology, yeah. we steal it, we put it into our framework of models and economics, mm-hmm. and then we think about how it can affect policy. Mm-hmm. So my background is actually, my postdoc was in a psychology department. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my work is at this intersection of psych and econ. So my work is interdisciplinary, where yeah. I am reading papers coming out of psych journals, but I'm thinking about it in a slightly different way than perhaps a psychologist would. And we're bringing in to economic decision-making. So I actually have a paper about stress and eco- like present bias, mm-hmm. how you think about making decisions over time. And I mean, the stress stuff, that's all coming from psych. Yeah. Yeah, I took uh, cognitive neuroscience and we learned about how if you give multiple options, people tend to choose like a middle option because it seems better mm-hmm. and prize one. Like, mm-hmm. so I think it's really interesting how like both disciplines can come together exactly. like and create a, a, new, a new field. Exactly. And so behavioral economics is really just psych and econ yeah. combined. <laughs> so to, to, to that sense, um, uh, what's like an important concept or theory from behavioral economics that like cultivates your curiosity or like it's important to you? So I had a discussion with this this morning because I think there is the one that I think I love the most that's changed my own world. And then there's the stuff that affects my research. The stuff that affect the the behavioral concepts that I think about a lot is present bias. Right. So it's exactly the story about how, you know, we all mean the best. Right. But we are present bias. We are going to make the same mistake over and over again, like Groundhog Day, where I'm always going to plan to do my work ahead of time. I'm always going to plan to grade in an orderly manner and get things to you in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. But guess what? In the moment, I'm going to watch some TV. I'm going to cook some dinner. I'm going to do something else because I yeah. don't want to grade. And I'm going to end up pushing things off in ways that make me worse off. And I'm going to always forget about that. And every time I start again, every semester I say, I'm not going to get so cranky this time. And every yeah. semester it happens again where I procrastinate and I'm cranky. <laughs> and I think that's really powerful because it explains so much of our behavior in a non-judgmental way, right? So I have students that come to me and they're like apologizing for why their lives have been so tough and why it's pushed them behind. Mm -hmm. And my reaction is like, that is okay, I get it. I would do it too, I do it too. Mm -hmm. But let's figure out how to design systems so that when that happens inevitably, 
you are not going to fail my class, that you are not going to fall so far behind that it becomes impossible. And that completely changes the narrative because it's more like we are all flawed in ways that are common across us. How do we design better systems such that when that happens, folks can still get out of that hole? Um, to me, that's just a really powerful thought. Sounds almost therapeutic. Like you, <laughs> like you learn from yourself and then you learn how to get out of those patterns. Yeah, though I the... guess the one of the implications of the theory is that even if you learn, you might still make the same mistakes yeah. over and over again. Yeah. So it's less about being like, I am a bad person for making this mistake, but more about, okay, let me, like, I joke with this with my students. Mm -hmm. I literally have my schedule designed in a very way that I make sure I do the things that make me happy and less grumpy, even when I'm behind on everything. Because I know that those are the moments where I need my exercise, my mm -hmm. healthy dinners, my walks with my dog. Yeah. And, and I think it's about designing systems for the flaws. Um, so I think it's very non-judgmental. Maybe that's what you mean by therapeutic. Yeah, but that's what I, sorry, that's what I meant. I, I, um, <clears throat> so I know you mentioned like um, how we are becoming more of a globalized uh, world and how you're doing research in different countries. Um, so like, what are some current challenges we face like in the sphere of political governance with in regards to behavioral economics and like how how we how do we address these problems? I think it's really easy to go in with a closed mind. I think, I mean, I think this has always been true, especially with like Western versus non-Western countries, mm -hmm. that there's this arrogance. That I know what your problem is. This is what's yeah. wrong with you. Let me come in and fix it. And in fact, if you read development books from like the 80s and 90s, it's, they're so arrogant. They're so arrogant about like, if you just fix X, then all of a sudden these yeah. countries will be fine. And I think that's gotten worse over time, where when I think about our political discourse, there's this arrogance of like, no, this is just how people are. So let me give you an example. Vaccines. Mm -hmm. Right, there's a two camps of like, vaccines are great, let's use them. Yeah. Vaccines are like, terrible, let's, let's ignore them. And often in how our government has implemented policies, they've just been like, vaccines are good, let's force people to get vaccines. And what I think they're forgetting often is the behavioral science. Mm -hmm. Right, for example, like from my perspective, the mask wearing is really great. Right? And I understand that if enough people are vaccinated, you might not need them. Mm -hmm. But the actual behavioral science in terms of the psychology of people's minds of taking them off and on and off and on completely undermines the effectiveness of the policy. And I think there's this like, there's the arrogance component of just like, I know it's wrong, I'm just gonna act on it and not being open to the fact that people are more complicated and contradictory than <laughs> we give them credit for. Um, and then the second is just thinking about the behavioral science. Like we need to be thinking about that because even though maybe vaccination science is a thing, mm -hmm. the behavioral aspects of how do you get people to take them and how do people change their behavior once they've taken them, I think we're not paying enough attention to. And I think for me, it's just people, I don't know if I were to say anything, people are weird and confusing and interesting. And let's, let's just be open to that and see what happens rather than assuming we know. Um, so it does like your field like does apply to like government and like they should be more involved with like government policies and decision making yeah so actually they've stopped funding behavioral sciences but like there used to be even the NIH National Institutes of Health used to fund behavioral health stuff because mm -hmm. it was acknowledgement that this behavioral side is so important mm -hmm. um, there was an equivalent of a behavioral unit that is sometimes like the UK has a behavioral nudge unit that is actually part of their government. And I think all of this was a recognition that it is 
this behavioral side is really important, even for policies that seem like they're about health or other fields. Um, so, well, that leads us to our last question. Um, as you mentioned, like the funding and like there's been these changes in our in the government structure and the way that the research is conducted. So, so how do you see society at large evolve, like looking at the current development taking place in the field of behavioral economics, or like what are some future avenues that you see like expanding or like taking place? Well, my partner is a policy analyst, and he constantly tells me that we academics are doing a terrible job of communicating the impacts mm -hmm. of our work to the larger world. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I write a paper, I write it very narrowly, talking about the strengths and limitations in an academic sense. And we are very careful not to overextend ourselves in terms of the, the reach or implications of the paper. Mm -hmm. But my partner, who's a policy analyst, is like, no, that's the interesting bit. I want to understand that and be able to act on that and influence policy. So what he argues with me, and this is an argument we have, <laughs> is that like, yes, the narrow-mindedness that serves me well as an academic, is actually at odds with influencing policy. And so his whole theory is that there, there needs to be that bridge between like the careful academics stating the policy implications and bringing it to policymakers. They better know how to act because sometimes you, sometimes I think that the issue isn't that we don't know what works. It's that we've done a very poor job of communicating to the public and communicating to our governments how things ought to be or like what, what we know yeah. about the evidence. So it sounds like we need to be more like open to share the information. Like it should, it should be more accessible, and yeah. like we should work yes. towards that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that sounds like real, a really a viable solution that like every institution should be moving forward to. Yeah. And right now, there's poor incentives. Again, this is the argument we have. It's poor, there's poor incentives for academics to really influence policy. Mm -hmm. um, I think some folks are doing that better than others, but I think we need to push us more in that direction because we all think it matters. We're just too careful about trying to influence that policy conversation. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Franchi, for your time and this insightful conversation. Uh, we learned so much about your amazing work, and we at the GPI hope that you continue to do incredible things for the LMU community and the community at large. And we look forward to hosting you in the future again. And I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I'll just say a plug. I teach two courses related to global issues. So I would love to see GPI affiliates or students mm -hmm. involved take my courses because they're always a joy to work with. And I find that those coming from the political science background, which I think is a lot of GPI, have a lot of insightful comments to add to our class. Yeah, I mean, my yeah, classes. We'll, we'll definitely give you a shout out and promote it on the Sounds good. Well, uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Well, this concludes this episode of the Global Policy Institute podcast. Uh, thank you for listening and stay tuned for future content. On behalf of GPI and myself, have a great day and we hope to hear from you soon.